Well, I told you I was hoping to give a little bit of a, a testimony. I know next week we're going to be giving testimonies, but that's mainly a briefer testimony next week of how the Lord has been meeting and providing for our needs. This is the testimony of God's saving grace and how it affected our family. And uh, I want to read a section of Scripture for you from the book of Romans. We're going to consider two, two passages of Scripture tonight. One from Romans chapter 1, where I'll make a few remarks and, and go into a little bit of detail. And then the other will be simply in reference to how the Lord dealt with us in salvation. So the first passage I want to read is from Romans chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 11, and we'll read through the section dealing with a description of the gospel. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the word literally means there to hold down or suppress. They hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 18. And trust the Lord to bless this reading of his word to us for Christ's sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful tonight for the testimony that we have as thy people of the Lord's saving grace. Lord, we thank thee for the words that we find in Jonah 2.9. That salvation is of the Lord. Every time we refer to our being converted to Christ, we must confess that salvation is of the Lord. We give thee all honor and praise and glory for the work of grace that's done in the heart. And so, Father, help us as we consider these passages of Scripture that focus on the gospel and help us to be encouraged that the Lord is still in the business of saving souls and He's still bringing in the elect unto salvation. So, Lord... Be with us and meet with us tonight. Around thy word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you tonight, how would you define how would you how would you define the gospel? What is the gospel? What would your answer be? We uh, we deal with a lot of aspects of what we refer to as the gospel. But if you were to take a passage of scripture and highlight different sections within a text, 
what passage would you go to that best highlights what we would often refer to as the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel? Well, I think most people would be drawn to the book of Romans. You've often heard of the, the phrase, taking someone down the Romans road, showing them their sin, showing them their need for Christ and what Christ has done for us in the gospel <clears throat> as you make your way through the book of Romans. Paul, Paul argues in that fashion through many of his, of, his, of his epistles. He has a certain style that builds upon his argument, proves something, and then builds upon that. That's another one of the reasons why you can go to a book like the, the book of, of, of Hebrews, and even though Paul's name is not affixed to it, it has definitely a Pauline style where Paul argues and continues to build his argument as he goes through the, the epistle. But you would go to Romans, and which section of Romans would you go to? Well, you can go to Romans chapter 3 that begins by summing up everything that Paul was mentioning in the first couple chapters uh, by giving this long list of verses from the Old Testament scriptures to show that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. Then in the second half of Romans chapter 3, we are told that Christ has dealt with our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins, which leads to chapter 4 and 5 dealing with justification. And so the argument would build, but that's that's a huge section, and you would be there for a good good hour, at least, trying to explain Paul's argument through those sections. I believe you have a more concise definition of what the gospel is, and it's by way of introduction to the book. Paul tells us at the very beginning, in his introduction, what the book is is dealing with. It's dealing with the gospel. He's talking about his own experience, and he's talking about the burden that he had to continue to preach the gospel Uh, And the burden specifically that he had to preach the gospel to those that were at Rome. And that's the section of Romans chapter 1 that we read. He mentions that was his desire to preach the gospel to those that were at Rome also. So in verse 15 he says, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. So he mentions the gospel. He's ready to preach the gospel. And then in a few verses, verses 16, 17, and 18 you have Paul highlighting certain aspects of the message of the gospel, which I believe are a good way to sum up what it is that we preach when we preach the gospel. Dr. Cairns used to teach us in homiletics class that you have to have a message that you're ready to preach at all times. He would actually use the initials RFA. You have to be ready for anything. You never know. Maybe you're on vacation and you go to a church where the minister calls in sick. He absolutely cannot preach. And there's no one else in the church that can preach. So he said you have to, as as studying for the ministry, you have to have a message that is like a default message that at all times you can go to, to preach on the spot. And And he never told us what passage to pick, but he said you... Whatever burden the Lord puts on your heart, have one passage, one outline in your mind that you can go to as your default, as your RFA message, in case you need to preach in the spur of the moment. Well, Romans chapter 1 
verses 16, 17, and 18 is my RFA message. Because there's not a better message you can preach on the, on the, on the spur, at the spur of the moment, at, 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 at a time when you have to kind of get up and speak without any preparation. It deals specifically with what is the gospel. And I want to give this first, this outline to you before I get into my testimony, because it, it's, it's, some, it's, a, it's a section of scripture and it's an easy outline to remember if anyone ever asks you what the gospel is, it deals with what the heart and soul of the message of the gospel is. And maybe it will, be, it will benefit you to be able to draw upon this if someone asks you for a, a brief def, definition of the gospel. Now, the, the, the easy way to remember the outline for this section is there's three verses. And each verse deals with the word or begins with the word for. And in the Greek, you can, it's the same word that means because. So there's a statement that's made, and it's followed up then by a for. And so it's explaining the statement. So he makes a statement, and in essence, he says, because this is true. And then he follows that up by saying, if that's true, then this is true. So the word for is used every time. And so there's three questions that comprise these points that I want to leave with you before I give you my testimony that will help you to explain what the gospel is. The first question that you find is, is answered in verse 16. The, the question is, what is the gospel? Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because, or for, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The message of the gospel is the message that leads saints, or that leads Jews and Gentiles, both to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Here it's referred to as the power of God unto salvation. I'm sure you've heard preaching on this section of Scripture, and you may have even heard what the Greek word for power here is. I like Greek. I loved, I loved Greek. I loved studying Greek. When I was in the seminary, couldn't stand Hebrew. I couldn't wait until Hebrew was over. It literally is a backwards language. You have to read it backwards, and that is the beginning of sorrows in studying Hebrew. But Greek, I was told by Judy Brown, and I later double checked her statement, and it is accurate that 80% of English comes from Greek and Latin. And you'll find that there are a lot of Greek words that you're studying in class and memorizing that immediately you can say, hey, wait a minute, I know an English word that came from that, right? I'm going to tell you in a few minutes, I was born in Philadelphia. Two words, two Greek words, philos and delphos, two compound words that make one word, city of brotherly love, right? So you find that all throughout English, uh, the city of brotherly love, and other words that you find. This word for power is the word dunamis. It's the Greek word dunamis. There is no Y in Greek. It's always a U. So you may see that the word dynamite is where we get our English word. We get the English word dynamite from the Greek word dunamis. And I often apply that to this section and say, it isn't just power. It's the greatest demonstration of power when you need to blast 
something that can't be chipped away or chiseled away. You bring in the dynamite to do the job. It's the heavy-duty power. And that is the word that the Lord chose to describe the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's the only way that sinners are saved from the wrath to come. But then the question may be asked, well, why is the power of why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? You say this make this broad statement that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Why is it the power of God unto salvation? There's another four in the next verse. Paul explains why it's the it's the power of God unto salvation. He says, for or because therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So you ask the question, what is the gospel? Paul says, it's the dynamite of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. It's the power, it's the demonstration of divine power that leads souls to salvation. Well, then you say, well, what is it about the message of the gospel? Why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? Well, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, it's just an interesting way of putting it. Another way that I believe you could interpret this passage is thinking in terms of the ones who believe, from the faith to the faith. Everyone that believes, this person, that person, the next person, doesn't matter who it is, whoever believes experiences the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel. Now, there are people that come to this section and they wonder what the righteousness of God is. And next week in the will of God, we're going to spend more time dealing with God's righteousness and what he provides, the righteousness that he provides. Are we here talking about his divine character? Are we talking about his inflexibility when it comes to the the, the law? God's righteous. So... He can't overlook sin. Well, that's true. God is righteous. And in that regard, you can refer to that aspect as God's righteousness. But I don't believe that's what's in focus here. I believe that what's in focus here is the righteousness that God demands in order to therefore bless the people that keep the law. The standard is met. The righteous standard that God has Uh, by way of of his law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. This isn't God's character. It's actually the righteousness that he demands in the keeping of the law. And since God demands it, then you can say it's God's righteousness. Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. There's the same phrase, right? God's righteousness. The righteousness of God. Clearly, in this verse, it's not talking about God's moral character, that he's righteous. It's talking about a standard that God has set up whereby sinners can never attain to, and yet God demands that we keep that standard. That standard is revealed in His law. God's righteousness is revealed in the law. And so here, 
We know that's the case because it, it not only talks about God's righteousness, but then it says that the Jews are going about to establish their own righteousness. Well, what is that? That isn't their moral character. That's their attempts at pleasing the Lord through keeping the law. So they're ignorant that God has a righteousness, an obedience to the law that he provides that is outside your attempts at keeping the law. The same phrases are used. God's righteousness. God's righteousness. The end of the verse. We read it. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Does that mean somehow they haven't submitted themselves to this inflexible moral character of God? No. They haven't submitted themselves to the righteousness that God provides in the gospel. You say, how do you know that? <coughs> Look at the next verse. The next verse says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The, the righteousness that God demands is met in Christ. So obviously it's not talking about God's moral character. It's, it's talking about the standard whereby God accepts sinners. He can only accept sinners on the basis of a perfect legal obedience, a perfect righteousness. That righteousness is called God's righteousness. It's the righteousness that God provides and that he requires that sinners have in order to be accepted. The Jews, they understood the fact that God was righteous. That's why they tried to keep the law. That's why they went about to establish their own righteousness. Understanding God had an inflexible standard, they missed the fact that God provides the righteousness in the gospel through the work of Christ. And so what did they do? They went about to establish their own righteousness. They knew God was righteous. But how to please that righteous God, they, they misunderstood. They were ignorant. They, 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 were, they didn't have any knowledge of the message of the gospel, which is not only does God demand this righteousness, but he provides this righteousness. They missed it. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness. He goes on to say, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live in them. But the righteousness which is of faith, you see that? Now, there's, now he describes it in a different way. God's righteousness is referred to as a righteousness which is by faith. So wait a minute. This righteousness of God is a righteousness which can, which can only be received the moment I believe. Yes, that's right. See, some of the phrases that are used in the book of Romans... They're not specific, they're explained in other sections. So here we're told the righteousness of God is something that the Jews were trying to keep by their own attempts. They were ignorant of, of the fact that God provides it already and it's received by faith. We refer to it as an imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that's put to your account the moment you believe. So you go back to Romans chapter 1. Now you understand what Paul means when he talks about he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Why is it the power of God unto salvation, Paul? Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. There's a message when we preach the gospel. There is a message that God provides a righteousness for the sinner that is received the moment the sinner believes on the work of Christ. And he goes on to explain that in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4. If you have the time, especially Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about two of the Old Testament saints, one being Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him 
It was counted to him for righteousness. Does it say that Abraham kept all the law perfectly and, and did everything God commanded? No. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The same exact narrative you find in Romans chapter 10. It's a righteousness which is of faith. It's a righteousness which is of faith. So why do we say that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Because in that message, the righteousness of God is revealed. You see that God provides a righteousness for those that believe in Christ that cannot be improved upon. And really, I I mentioned earlier today that that is the one aspect of the gospel that is neglected. Years ago, I went out to uh, a conference in in, uh, in California, uh, to MacArthur's church. And uh, they had, uh, had R.C. Sproul there. And R.C. Sproul was, I believe, one of the great influences in John MacArthur's life to convince him of Reformed doctrine uh, and to steer him right in, in his understanding of doctrine. And they had this, this panel, they were all up on the front and, and different individuals wrote down questions and they were asking questions. And one of the questions that was asked R.C. Sproul was that in the Reformation, the issue of justification was front and foremost. And Luther actually made the statement during the Reformation that if you're not, if you're not fighting the issue that's front and foremost during the day, then you're, you're pretty much neglecting your responsibility as a preacher. Whatever the issues are that are, that are front and center, it's the responsibility of the, of the preacher of the gospel to take them head on. And the, the, the movements in church history often took the name or followed the name of the issue that was being fought. And so the question was asked R.C. Sproul, if you were to start a movement today, that was named based on the most important issue at stake, what would it be? And he said, well, I, I, I think I would have to name the movement the imputationists. Because he said, it's the most important doctrine associated with the gospel, and it's the most neglected that you'll find in evangelicalism. You ask ten people who, who profess faith in an average evangelical church, what do we mean when we talk about imputation of righteousness? And you will probably get ten different answers. Probably nine of them would be borderline heretical. They have no idea. Most people are ignorant that God provides a righteousness. Now, I'm not saying that they're not saved. I think there's a lot that you have to learn as you grow in grace. And much of the knowledge that we have of the gospel is the result of the success or the neglect of the preaching ministry. So if you are attending a church where the minister is neglecting preaching on doctrine, you're going to be negligent on your understanding of doctrine. Your faith can be in Christ, but you you just don't understand what Christ has done for you. And I had professed faith for a long time before I even heard that there was an imputed righteousness. And I'll get to that in a moment, but this is the heart of the gospel. That Christ's obedience, and and Romans chapter 5 deals with this very issue, that by by the disobedience of one, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. Paul, you can see, when you understand that what's being referred to in Romans chapter 1, when we talk about the righteousness of God, is the imputed righteousness of Christ, 
Now you begin to see that Paul never gets away from that argument through the whole book. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. He goes through these, the sections in the book of Romans that deal with the gospel and over and over and over again. He talks about the glory of the gospel that is revealed in this imputed righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those that believe. You no longer have to go about to establish your own righteousness. This was the story of my testimony. Raised in an environment where I was taught I had to establish my own righteousness. Why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? Because in the message of the gospel, we herald forth, you don't have to. You don't have to earn your own righteousness. First of all, because you can't. Second of all, because you'll waste your entire life trying to do something you can't do. It's been provided for you. In the work of Jesus Christ, it's received by faith alone. That is why the message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, because in it, the message of imputed righteousness is revealed. Well, why is the message of imputed righteousness revealed? Why is it such an important message that sinners need to be told they need to be righteous? Well, there's another four in verse 18. The message of the gospel reveals righteousness, and righteousness needs to be revealed because the wrath of God is revealed. God judges sin. God judges sin. And he judges those who do not meet his righteous standard. And he then goes into chapter 2 and chapter 3, shows that the Jew and the Gentile, they're all under sin. But we preach a message of imputed righteousness because God will judge sin. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on sin. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The truth is being suppressed by the ungodly. It's our job to uncover the truth and to preach that God has provided an imputed righteousness in the work of Jesus Christ. That's, in a nutshell, why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So you can remember that outline. I came up with this outline, ironically enough, on a night when I was in Greenville. All the ministers were going to be away. And so Dr. Cairns worked it out that I was supposed to, John Baker preached in the morning, and I was supposed to preach at night. Well, back in those days, you probably doubled the size of the congregation in the evening. It's completely reversed now. But such was the nature of the, the restrictions or the, the rules that Bob Jones set up for their students that they were allowed to come over in the evening. They had to attend church in the morning on campus. So, you know, the church was half full in the morning, but at night, you had to get the, to get the faith free 20 minutes early and put hymn books out on the road to, to reserve your seats. That's how many people came. So you got there 20 minutes early, you, you still might not have found a spot. And I was single, so all I had to find was, was one spot and probably half as wide as I need now. So I was a lot, a lot thinner then, so, and I still had a hard time trying to find a spot. But I was told, look, John will preach in the morning, you preach in the evening. Well, all I was thinking at that time was there's twice as many people there, so my heart raced twice as fast, right, because the place is packed out. And these are all, you know, maybe not my peers, but, you know, kids in school, 20, 21, 22. I, at the time, I was like 27. So, you know, there's still that aspect of these are my peers, so, you know, you get more nervous around your, around your peers. So uh, I was asked to preach. Well, I was supposed to share the time with Ravi, our missionary to India, and uh, I still remember I had a message prepared 
that I was going to preach on the life of Samson, and the title was Presumptuous Sin. That's what I felt the Lord wanted me to preach on. And Ravi got up to give a report. Now, he was supposed to speak for a half an hour, and then I was supposed to preach for a half an hour. And he got up, and he started talking, and he got to a half hour, 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. He just kept going on. And it was, it was, it was of the Lord, because he was talking about the history of the work in India. And near the end of his message, he got very emotional, talked about some experiences of missionaries that were martyred. This one family, I, you may have even remembered the story, that one family that he was surrounded by Hindus, and he and his family were in the car, and they actually lit the car on fire and burned the family alive. Just stuff like that that you don't hear in the news because they don't want to give that impression that, that Christians are suffering for the cause of Christ. But he, he gave two or three accounts that were very emotional. And I remember sitting there thinking, man, I can't, I can't preach on presumptuous sin after this. I mean, everyone's emotionally charged. And so I, I just ditched it. And to this day, I'm still amazed that I had the, the nerve to do that because I practically just wrote a few things down. And I was a student. And I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined stepping behind the pulpit at Faith Free with the place packed out with just a couple lines in front of me. But this was the outline and instead of saying, what is the gospel, what's the definition, I, the, the way I applied it was, why do people hate the gospel? Why do people hate the gospel? Why do, the, why do those that are in unbelief hate the message of the gospel? And then dealt with the same outline. Sinners hate the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel is the only religious message that teaches you're justified by someone else's works. There's two religions in the world. You say, there's tons more. No, there's two religions in the world. Those that believe you suppress the anger of your deity by what you do. And then there's the religion that teaches that you suppress the anger and you please your God based upon the merits of someone else. Biblical Christianity is the second religion. It's the only religion that teaches we are justified before God based upon the merits of someone else. And that's why sinners hate the message of the gospel. Sinners want to pat themselves on the back and feel like they are pleasing their deity. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel. Abel understood that the way you approach God is through the shedding of the blood. So he brought the firstling of, the off, of, of his flock as an offering to the Lord. Cain had the greatest of intentions. I, I've heard preaching on that where they said it had to do with how he, how he brought it. That's nonsense. If Cain brought an offering to the Lord with a, with a bad spirit, he never even would have come to the Lord. He would just said, forget it, I'm not bringing an offering. He came to the Lord expecting to be accepted. Expecting his offering to be accepted. But he brought the, the fruit of the ground. His own labors, everything that he threw into the ground. And in his mind, I'm sure he said, the Lord would understand all the effort and all the labor and all the sweat and the tears that went in to finally producing a harvest. God has to be happy. And it says that the Lord had respect to Abel and his offering. But he rejected Cain's offering. And the hatred and the, the, the anger that burned in the heart of Cain toward the Lord and toward his brother, wasn't based upon the fact that he brought it with a bad spirit. It was because his efforts were rejected. 
God is not pleased with the shallow efforts of man to, to attain righteousness through his own keeping, through his own efforts, through his own efforts to keep the law. It was shown way back then. Abel understood the only way you can be accepted before God is through the, the merits of the lamb, the shedding of the blood, and it has to be a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, no blemish, no spot. It speaks of righteousness. Such was the hatred of Cain. He rose up against his brother and slew him. And it's, it's been the same ever since. Oh, you may not get murdered, but you get scoffed, you get mocked, you get rejected. Holy rollers, that's what we're, we're accused of being because we preach in a, a free justification through an imputed righteousness. Church of Rome, many years ago, in considering the Reformation and what the Reformers were preaching, made statements at the Council of Trent where they said, if you preach in a free justification through an imputed righteousness, you're anathema, you go to hell. Oh, they hate, they hate the message that our efforts don't please the Lord. Our efforts don't earn or merit before God a righteousness. It was in that environment that I was raised. I was born in Philadelphia. Never lived in Philadelphia. I was born in Philadelphia on December 25th, 1973. Not many of you can say that you put your mother in the hospital on Christmas Day. But I, uh, she always brought that up. She said, I have six kids, but you're the only one that put me in the hospital on Christmas Day. So I really didn't have much choice in the matter at the time. But uh, it's actually one of the reasons why I was named Christian. My name's not Christopher, it's Christian. And uh, the same year, 1973, there was the first heart transplant that was done I think it was a Dutch doctor named Christian Bernard. And my mom said that last name is pretty close to Barnes. She liked the way it sounded, and so she named me Christian Barnes. No middle name, just Christian Barnes. I uh, was raised in the Church of Rome, and I loved religion from the earliest days. Religion was at the center of our family, even though my dad wanted nothing to do with it. My dad was raised Methodist. <clears throat> He had uh, Methodist on his dog tags. Remember as a kid, always looking at my dad's dog tags from when he was in the military and he said he was Methodist. And I had no idea what that meant because the only religion I knew was Catholic. And to me, Catholic meant Christian. I didn't know that there were other denominations. There was this weird white church up on the hill. And I always asked my mom, I said, what is that? It's a church? But what is it? Like, who goes there? Like, here's the church. What is that thing? She said, oh, it's just a different church. I'm like, what do you mean a different church? There's no different church. We're the Catholic, I mean, the Catholic church goes way back. I don't know. So I, I knew there were other denominations, but just thought that they were like cults or something, like some weird, weird thing. And so in that environment, I was raised with a very, uh, a very strict uh, Catholic background. Uh, when I became old enough, I, would, uh, I became an altar boy to help. In the Mass, there was, uh, I almost said a single priest, <laughs> they're all single, but uh, there was a younger priest uh, that came to our church, Church of the Holy Name, his name was Father Rick, he's in his early 30s, and he became like a, a father to me. I mean, we would always call him father, you call your priest's father, but he, he was always down to our house, always taking us places, doing things, and, and you know, you hear about abuses and things in the Catholic Church with some of the priests, but uh, I never had any, any issues like that. I always had uh, 
I always have favorable views of the church. And that's why I was so interested in religion, because uh, the involvement that even the priest had in our family was, um, he was, a, he was a, a great guy. He was a friend. He was close to the family. And so it was in that environment that I was raised. Uh, I say I was born in Philadelphia. My parents moved to, to South Jersey right before I was born. And my mom used the same hospital in Philadelphia for all six kids. So every time she was ready to deliver, she crossed over the bridge. My dad had to take her back over to Nazareth Hospital in the Northeast, where that's not even there anymore. They knocked it down. But all six kids were born in Philadelphia, even though the last four never, never lived in the city. So I was raised in South Jersey and went to the Church of the Holy Name and was very involved, very close to the, to the priest. And uh, right around when I was about 10 years old, I noticed that my dad started to show more interest in spiritual things. And he would come home from work talking about the conversations he was having with a fellow at work. His name was Bill. And uh, right around the same time, my two brothers were coming home from high school, and they were talking about spiritual things and didn't realize at the time that when they switched from middle school to high school, they were both very athletic, and they both got involved in sports. And the freshman baseball coach, his name was Paul Gardner, he was a believer. He loved the Lord. He actually later would go on the mission field for a while and, and, and serve the Lord. But at the time, he was a teacher at Dalran High School. And so in the providence of God, through two separate uh, influences, the gospel began to come in and, and affect our family. Now, I could sense the tension because my mom was very Catholic. She was raised Catholic. And my dad started to come home with these, these statements that he would make, and he would purposely say things that he knew would get my mom upset. But he understood that this is what the Bible would say. Like the one time I clearly remember, I was only about 10 or 11, and my dad came home from work, and he's like, guess what I found out today? He said that since my faith is in Christ, I'm a saint. So he says, say hello to St. Ronald, right? And we laugh about that, but that's borderline blasphemy to a Roman Catholic because you pray to the saints. I mean, they have so much merit that there's a treasure chest in heaven that it stores their merit because they did so much more good works than ever they needed that that's given to us, right? This, this became the basis in the Reformation for the, for the indulgences that the church sold. That if you pay money, we can give you an indulgence that washes away your sin because the saints did so much more than they needed to do that they can give you that. And it's a nice little, nice little deal. You can live like the devil, buy, buy a little bit of righteousness, and you're in, right? But... Your view of the saints was that they were the ones that you prayed to. And so I, I just knew there was this tension. And my mom would get so mad, she actually started reading the Catholic version of the scriptures because she had no answer for my dad. And she's like, these, these things can't be right. So she started reading. I remember in all this tension, and I knew my mom was mad, but the irony was that at the more mad she got, the more I saw her sitting there reading the scriptures, which was backwards but she was looking for an answer and I, I firmly believe ultimately when she came to Christ that that is what that is what led her that opened up her heart even the Catholic version the Dewey Reams version of the scriptures is still able to lead a soul to Christ the gospel's there there's no doubt and so she's reading and reading and reading 
And she began to soften in her criticisms of my dad. But she still held to the church, right, very strongly. Well, my brother, Ron and Mark, they both came to Christ, straight through, came, came to Christ. And my brother, Ron, was on fire. If you know Ron, he is all, he, whatever he does, he, well, it, it used to be this way. Whatever he did, he did full bore. I mean, if he read something and he felt like he needed to do it, 110%. I mean, he was an all-county linebacker. He wrestled. He won the districts in wrestling. He was a great athlete. Whatever he put his hand to, like that verse in your, in your house I saw today, do it with all your might, right? That's what he did. Well, they were going through the commandments at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in the high school. And they got to the commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And we're still going to the Catholic Church. Right, and so Ron was talking to Mr. Gardner, and he started, and he says, "Well, what about the crucifix? No, it's no, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to have that." So, wow, okay, yeah, that's 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 breaking the commandment. So he goes home, goes into my parents' room, and t- takes the crucifix off the wall from behind their bed, and it was a metal crucifix, had a picture of the dead, the image of what is portrayed to be Christ, and I guess with a hammer or a screwdriver or something pried the dead Christ off the cross, threw it in the trash can, and then put it back up over the bed. So it's just the cross. Well, my mom wondered what happened. She thought maybe it just fell off. And then you can imagine the horror, because my mom is still Catholic, that her son threw Christ in the trash. That's how she viewed it. And she went ballistic, called the priest. The priest came down, talking to the family. He knew things were different now and that was that that was the situation in which I found myself in my early days I never remember hearing the gospel but I knew something was going on the first time I heard the gospel I went to St. Pete's Carnival if you know anything about the Catholic Church they have these carnivals during the summer I'm sure they have them here they set up for like a week or so and set up all these rides and well South Jersey the parishes are so close together we could ride our bikes to the different parishes, right? And it was great. I mean, during the summertime, you'd go to St. Charles. They'd have it the first week of August. And St. Pete's is the second week. Then your church, holy name. It's like a constant carnival, right? Funnel cakes, rides. It was great. So I went, we went over to St. Pete's in Riverside. And that was the bigger of the churches in the area. And a lot of kids I knew went to school there. We never had enough money to send me to Catholic school. And I remember walking around with my friends. And I saw this big group of kids surrounding this guy that... In my opinion, he looked like a hippie. I was like, what in the world is going on here? They were my age, and they were the one guy in the middle was yelling at this guy, and he's holding the book, and he's talking to them. And I went over, and I was listening, and he was talking about Christ and what Christ has done, and that you don't need to keep the law, these, these issues that I just dealt with in the gospel. And I remember clearly, even though I didn't have my trust in Christ at the time, I remember hearing that and saying, that's true. What he's saying is right, because that's why Christ came into the world. So even before I understood the gospel, by the grace of God, the first time I heard the gospel, I was open to it. And, and they were mocking him. And I remember the one guy, I think he was high. He was doing, you know, he was on something. He kept going around to everyone. He says, are you Catholic? Yeah, don't listen to him. Are you Catholic? Don't listen to him. And he came to me and he said, are you Catholic? Don't listen to him. And I just, I remember saying, but... What he's saying is right. Why would I not listen to him? Why, why would, so I went up to the guy afterwards and like patted him on the back and just said, you know, 
you're doing a good job or something like that. Something that like a 12-year-old kid would say, right? Good job, you know, I felt bad for him. But I remember clearly saying that what he was teaching was against what the church was teaching, but it was right. I knew it was right. Well, later, we ended up leaving the Catholic Church. Even my mom came to Christ and, and saw the errors of the church. It was actually through the death of her, of her cousin. We went to the funeral, and the, his wife, my cousin's wife, was saved. My, her, her, my mom's cousin's wife was saved. The cousin had died was not. And she was talking with Maggie, and uh, they were, she was talking to her about the gospel, and then they sat down and went through the Mass. And during the Mass, my mom saw the inconsistencies of the, of the priest. We know he's with the Lord because the waters of baptism washed away his sin. We know he's with the Lord because he was a faithful son of the church. But then they pray that God would accept the soul of the departed Tommy. And she's like, well, if you know he's with Christ, then why are you praying for his soul? And there were like three or four different contradictions in the Mass. If you ever attend a Roman Catholic Mass, you see it. I just, the last one I just went to, and a lot of people wouldn't attend the Mass. I, I have no problem doing it because of my history. I know what to expect when I'm there. I wanted my boys to see the errors of the Mass. The priest came right out at the, at the funeral for my, my, my aunt and, sa- and said, we, we, we don't know if Jane's with Christ. We don't know. He said it right there in his homily. It was like, at least the man's honest. Usually they say, well, we know he's in a better place. He came right out and said, we don't know. Because they teach only the saints go to heaven. We have to pray the others out in purgatory. So my mom saw all these inconsistencies and she broke down and understood that the the gospel that my dad believed was, was the truth. So for a brief time, believe it or not, my dad converted the Roman Catholic Church, and he went to Mass with us because he thought it was good for the family. But then we understood we couldn't, we couldn't stay. Couldn't stay in the Church of Rome. It's a different gospel. So it was an atomic bomb that went off in that church when the Barnes family left. I remember my friends, the parents of my friends, asking what... And I, I, I understood. I just told them, look, we, we, we read the Bible, and it's just not... the church. What the church teaches is not the gospel. And they... they that was like I was speaking in Japanese to them. They didn't know what I was talking about. And they all knew that the Barneses got religion or whatever. You know, they're, they're, they're zealots. But we were convicted that we weren't right with the Lord. We were going about, just like the Jews that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 10, we were going about to establish our own righteousness. We did not submit to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. I ask the question to Roman Catholics to this day. If you can get to heaven by keeping the sacraments, which is what the church teaches, the church will say, well, we believe in God's grace, you're saved by grace, just like you teach that. And and they do. They believe that you're saved by grace. But what do they mean when they say you're saved by grace? Well, it's, it's sacramental grace. See, God gives grace to those that keep the sacraments. So when you keep the sacraments, God gives you grace, and it's through that grace that you're saved. Well... Paul deals with that in Romans 9. If it's grace, then it's not debt. If God gives it to you because you did something, it's not grace. If I go out and work, come back to my employer, I expect to be paid. I don't get paid and say, oh, thank you for this lovely gift. We have a contract. You owe me. You can't say that's grace. There's no such thing as sacramental grace. You keep the sacraments, that's works. Don't try to muddy the waters by saying it's God's grace. It's not. It's nonsense. 
You're going about to establish your own righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. The merits of Christ are put to the account of those that believe so that we can say, like Christ said, that our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because it can't be improved upon. The Son of God merited it for us. And so we came out of the Catholic Church, started to attend a few different uh, churches, ended up at the Free Church for just skipping over a number of years, went to Reformed Baptist Church for a while. And it was during my time in the Free Church that I really began to go on with the Lord. Uh, I don't know what day I was saved. I don't have an exact day. Like I said, it was more of a, a gradual work that the Lord opened my eyes to what I was hearing. I recognized it to be the truth. And I know my faith is in Christ. I'm resting in Christ for salvation. I'm not convinced the Lord necessarily wants you to focus on one day. It's an act of faith. It's a daily faith. It's a daily believing, resting on Christ, holding to Christ, clinging to Christ. That's a daily activity, not letting Christ go. Christ is my hope, my confidence, my surety. That's, that's what we need to be saying every day. It's not that you look back on one day and say, I, made, I prayed a prayer and that's the confidence that I'm saved. No, Christ, Christ is my Savior. And when I wake up the next day, Christ is still my Savior. And I'm still clinging to Christ. It's an active faith. So I don't know exactly what day I was saved. I do believe that there is a time where the Spirit of God quickens the heart. But I can tell you, right around the time where I understood the gospel and understood imputed righteousness is when I came into the free church. There have been a lot of times over the years we moved away, you know, uh, some issues that have arisen in the free church over the years that, you know, I, I had to question why I still attend this denomination. But I can't get away from the fact that this denomination was used by the Lord to open my eyes to my need for an imputed righteousness, that Christ has merited my salvation me. I tell you, when you understand that God is as happy with you now as he will ever be, whether you think you had a good day or a bad day, because you're not accepted based upon your merit. You're accepted based upon the merits of Christ. You're justified freely by God's grace. So if you think you have a good day and somehow you've You've pleased the Lord. God's more happy with you today than the days where you fall flat on your face. You don't understand why you're accepted. What's the basis for our acceptance before the Lord? It's the merits of Jesus Christ. It's not my works. And somehow we get into this, what I refer to as a Protestant Romanism, where we still think that I had a good day, And so I feel good about myself and God must be more happy with me than the days where I actively know that I'm sinning. Yeah, the Lord deals with sin in the lives of his people. And he won't turn away, he won't turn a blind eye to your sin. But you are no more accepted on those days than you are on the days where you feel like you're serving the Lord well. Because your your acceptance is not on, on the basis of your own act of obedience. It's the obedience of Christ that's put to your account. Your righteousness can never be improved upon. It's Christ's righteousness. So I, I started hearing that message when I was in the, came into the free church. Felt the, the burden to go study. I touched on that a little bit today. Uh, felt that the Lord had something for me. At the time, I would have said that I was, I was called to the ministry. I felt like I was going to be pursuing the pastorate. I said earlier today, it wasn't long in my studies where I knew 
that I was not pastor material. This was not what the Lord was calling me to do. And so after I finished my internship with Mr. Wagner, we both agreed that I should just go back to Malvern and just make myself available to be used in any way that I can be used. And so right around that time, Dr. Allison started to go to Liberia. He was away quite a bit. And uh, I started filling pulpit. I filled pulpit for him. Then someone else, there was a vacancy here, a vacancy there. And it just became uh, a ministry that kind of opened up where, based upon my schedule at the time, I, I was working for a greenhouse that, that uh, was a seasonal job. So nine months out of the year, I was flexible. So I was able to, to go away for weeks at a time. And I just made myself available to, to be able to be filling fill uh, where there's needs and uh, left out a pretty big, a big, pretty big event there. And, and during those times, I actually got married. Lord had mercy on me. Many people in the Greenville Church thought that would never happen. My wife's mother thought that would never happen. She still can't believe it happened. But uh, I married Jody, Jody Simmons, who uh, was one of nine children in the church there in Greenville. We moved to Pennsylvania, and uh, she never really fit in up there. And so uh, I knew it was inevitable that we would end up going back to the Greenville Church. And so eight years ago, we packed up and moved back to Greenville. I had no job. I left the job. I, I went down. I was so convinced that that's where the Lord would have us, that uh, we moved down there. I had some money saved up, so there wasn't, there wasn't uh, much of a problem there, but uh, started working for myself. And so I stayed in the industry that I was working in, in the greenhouse industry, and just continued, or in the green industry, and, and went into landscaping. And uh, still made myself available to, uh, to help in any way I can. And so I'm thankful that I'm part of a denomination that even though we're small and we have issues, there's no doubt about it. Actually, I, don't, I tell people I don't like using that, that phrase. That's like a modern phrase. When someone's got a problem, they, they, they say, I, 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 we've got issues or I've got issues. Well, issues takes the, takes the focus off of the person. An issue is something over here. We always used to refer to it as a problem. Right? If you have a problem, it's a personal problem. Everyone today wants to shift the blame. It's not their fault. It's not their problem. Well, I'm just dealing with issues. Right? Well, the free church has problems. We've got problems that we have to work through. And we've been working through problems. There's always going to be problems arising in denominations. And so if you look for a perfect denomination, you'll never attend a church. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be weaknesses as long as we're in these, these vessels of clay. But I will say this much. I am thankful for a denomination that continues to preach the gospel. And when we came back to Greenville, I wanted to, to continue to attend faith because of the Sunday school program. I, I knew that my children would be put under an intense curriculum of understanding and studying the scriptures. But what advantage do my children have over other children that are in the world. It's the same question that Paul was asked in Romans 3. What advantage then has the Jew? If you say the Jews are under sin and the Gentiles are under sin, well, what advantage is there of, of being a Jew? Paul says, much every way, because chiefly unto them have been committed the oracles of God. What's the, what's the chief blessing and benefit that my children have in attending the free church? That I have the confidence that they will have proper instruction in the oracles of God. It's the same chief benefit that the Jews had that made them covenant children. I don't, I don't hold to infant baptism. 
I don't believe that the sign and, and seal of the covenant needs to be applied to our children. But I'll be the first to argue that my children are covenant children. Because unto them have been committed the oracles of God. My children are special. Why are they special? Because they get to sit under the faithful preaching of the word week in and week out. Why do I attend the free church? Because I know that my children are hearing the preaching of Christ. Yeah, we've, we've got problems. Every denomination has problems. You can't look at, the, look at the world that we live in. The world's falling apart. Of course the church is going to have problems. But we, we faithfully preach the word of God. <clears throat> I have disagreements with some of the ministers on a lot of issues. But I pray for them. Why? Because these men have given themselves. They've given their lives to preaching the gospel. Used to be I would talk about, you know, this guy or that guy that, that is in the presbytery and, you know, I don't get along with him or that. I, I, I've, I've kind of come full circle to realizing that even if I don't agree with some of these men, they all have given their lives to faithfully preach the gospel of Christ. And like we saw this morning, that deserves our respect and our thanks to be given to the Father for the men that he's given to us who preach the gospel. And so that's where I am today. Uh, we, the Lord has brought us all safely through, all eight of us, six kids and my mom and dad. My mom's with the Lord. She died of a, a pulmonary embolism a couple years ago, blood clot to the heart or to the lungs. And my brother Mark was killed back in 2003. He's with Christ. And I know that uh, I'm going to see them. I'm going to be reconciled with them one day because the Lord brought us out of ignorance. He saved our souls and led us to a proper understanding of how sinners are reconciled to God. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. And so I have a testimony of saving grace that I love to share. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a common thing that the Lord saves a family of eight out of the church of Rome and gives us such a burden and a, a love for the gospel that, that we serve the Lord. I'm thankful for that. It's not a pride. It's not a pride. I can look at it and say, not many, you don't hear that kind of thing. You may hear that the Lord saves one out of a family and it saves two out of a family. But to save a family of eight out of the church of Rome who were steeped in Romanism, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what he's done. And so it does my own soul good to recount what the Lord has done. Helps remind me of what David said, Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. And we're all heading to the house of the Lord. We, we may have all different paths that we have to take in our experience in life. But the one thing we can say from Psalm 23 is that we're all headed to the house of the Lord. All those paths are going to diverge or, or come together, converge at the same place. And we can all say that we're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. I'm thankful to the Lord for his saving grace. So I trust the Lord will take these thoughts, especially from Romans 1 and Romans 10 about the gospel, and that he'll write them on our hearts for his name's sake.